Hello and welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast. I'm Jonathan Grace. I'm joined today by Sports Car 365 Editor-in-Chief John DeGeese. John, how was your weekend at Watkins Glen? Well, I think you could probably agree, Jonathan. It was a bit chaotic, but we, we enjoyed the, the weekend for sure. Um, interesting race to dissect on, on this week's episode. Today, we'll bring you a recap of the Salem's six hours of the Glen, give you the news of the week, answer some listener questions, and give you a preview of what's coming up in the sports car racing world. All that and more on today's episode of Double Stint. Well, John, it was a six-hour endurance race, and we were talking about it on the way over, and I think the best way to describe it, as you said, was sloppy. There were incidents all throughout. We'll kind of go through that uh, to begin with, but the big story is the number 10 Wayne Taylor Racing Acura takes the victory uh, on a late restart after a red flag for weather. Yeah, it ended up being a 20-minute shootout to the finish with Philippe Albuquerque getting around the number 60 MSR Acura of Tom Blomquist, which had dominated the whole weekend, topping the time charts in every single session, um, leading the majority of the race. Uh, The 10 was on a different pit sequence strategy. They were a bit off strategy. Even Ricky and Philippe said post-race that they probably weren't on the right strategy. And I think this red flag, as you mentioned, sort of equalized things um, for everybody. But one of the challenges for the 10 car was they had to conserve fuel in the closing uh, sprint to the, the checkered flag. And then Philippe actually ended up having a collision with um, a Lamborghini that caused some damage to the car. He said he was, he said the steering wheel was bent, the mirror was missing. It was a big mess in, in, in the cockpit of the ARX-05 to try to get the car to the finish. And he not only kept it in the lead, he brought it to the line to take their third win of the year. Yeah, and as you said, the, the 60 car did look the faster of the two the whole weekend, despite the, the crazy straight line speed uh, of, the, of the Wayne Taylor Racing car, the number 10 entry. The Cadillacs weren't super far behind, but it, it never really looked like they were in contention for a win. We saw uh, a couple late pushes from Sebastian Bourdais. He got close a few times during the race, and then at the restart, he was mixing it up uh, with Blomquist at the end and, and nearly nabbed second into the bus stop. Yeah, it was really interesting to see the number 01 car come on form in the last 20 minutes of the race. Um, I wasn't expecting to, to see that at all, but I think Seb put in a really good closing stint trying to maximize everything he could. Ultimately, he came up short. Um, there, were, I think traffic played a huge factor in getting around those the, the cars in the, in the closing final few laps there. Um, obviously, they end up, him and uh, Renger van der Zander ended up third in class and overall. The number 10 Wayne Taylor Racing duo uh, end up taking the lead in the DPI championship with the win. So um, definitely a lot of championship implications following this, this weekend's race in DPI. And I think if you've been watching this IMSA season as well, it was a clean weekend for the 01, which I think was huge. Looking at the car in victory lane, they had a tiny little bit of really insignificant damage on, on the rear diffuser, uh, but that was just about it. Other than that, it, it seemed to be a pretty straightforward weekend for them. Although it wasn't a win, it was a podium and solid championship points in the bag. Yeah, there's only three races left in the DPI championship this coming weekend at CTMP, um, Road America, and then Motul Petit Le Mans to close out the season. So I think, you know, all the drivers up front are definitely keeping a championship focus. I I was quite surprised by how aggressive the 10 car was in the race because they could have easily finished second. And Philippe definitely put it on the line in the closing closing laps. And this could end up being a pivotal move in the championship. Um, as we look back on the season, you know, this race could definitely be the turning point for the 10 crew if they end up winning the title at the end of the year. 
Well, we mentioned it was a six-hour enduro. It was not six straight hours of green flag running, though. There were a lot of yellow stoppages, a lot of LMP3 incidents early on. Uh, It really just looked like the P3s were kind of just getting up to grip and sorting things out. And there were rumors that there was actually a message from race control over the scanner saying, hey, guys, every incident so far up to this point before the halfway point had been a P3 car. Yeah, IMSA race director Bo Barfield got on the radio to the to teams and drivers saying, "Hey, you got you got to settle it down. LM, these LMP3s are sort of out of control." I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the exact words, but um after that point, it, it seemed like the LMP3 sort of played a little nicer. Um we saw some major incidents towards the the closing stages of the race actually between two LMP2 cars while they were battling for second that tagged the number 39 Carbon with Paragon Racing Lamborghini of Jeff Westfall. Um, Westfall made hard impact into the into the uh, barriers, and luckily he was okay. That was the final caution flag that actually led to the red flag for um, weather in the area. IMSA threw out the red when I think there was a lightning strike and within the the radius that's measured for for uh, safety purposes, and that's what ultimately brought us under that red flag for about an hour before the clock stopped for ten minutes. We're still trying to figure out how that all happened and dissecting exactly the the reason for that but nonetheless it gave us basically 10 more minutes of green flag running at the end of the race which probably made it a little bit more entertaining to the checkered flag yeah not sure if the the 60 crew was was a fan of of the stopped clock but uh at the end of the day for for a fan's perspective it was really really interesting to see and obviously the 10 car got around at the bus stop on the restart plenty of action in the gtd and gtd pro field as well and and those results are uh, still being finalized, although we do have a finishing order now. It was the Heart of Racing that actually ended up taking the GTD and GTD Pro victory. The first time a GTD car beat the Pro category car in a race uh, in IMSA since the two categories were introduced side by side. And that was kind of a surprise, too, because they were not the team that actually crossed the finish line first. Yeah, you're correct. And this was one of the craziest sequences of the final, you know, final dash to the checkered flag, then post-race drama, and then waiting for the podium. And as we're recording this, we're still actually waiting for the provisional results, which will, will show the penalties added. So basically, the number 25 um, BMW M Team RLL um, entry of John Edwards, Augusto Farfus, and uh, Connor Filippi they crossed the line first in GTD Pro, actually ahead of the number 57 Windward Racing Mercedes that, sh- that also provisionally had taken the win in GTD. However, both of those cars have been moved to the back of the finishing order because there was a drive time infraction for both of those cars. Edwards did not complete the minimum adjusted minimum drive time. He did an hour and one in the car. Um, Philip Ellis actually came bitterly close to getting the hour 17 in. He, according to data from Alcamel, he completed one hour 16 and four seconds. So if it was just another lap of the race, he probably would have ended up okay and not have lost the race on the drive time infringement. Um, I think this definitely caught a lot of teams out. We're still waiting for official word from IMSA on how many cars broke this infraction where we believe there's either eight or nine that will be moved to the back of the field after 
the sort of craziness post-race. Um, but like you said, Jonathan, I, I think the big story is the heart of racing sort of picks up an unlikely double victory. Um, the first time ever in WeatherTech Championship history that a team has swept both GTD Pro and GTD classes. And then I think more importantly, the GTD Pro-Am crewed car finished ahead of the GTD winning car. And we've talked about this, I think, all year long, is when is this going to happen? And I don't think I would have expected it in a six-hour race. Um, where you know the, the all-pro lineups would certainly be far superior to the pro-am lineups, but the craziness of this race, when we saw a lot of the, the GTD pro cars pit for a splash of fuel in the closing laps, um, the, the number 23 heart of racing of Alex, uh, Alex Riberis and Ross Gunn was actually running, I think, fifth with five laps to go, so that just shows how crazy it was where they didn't have to pit. They were on an off-sequence strategy similar to the Wayne Taylor racing Acura, so really interesting stuff in the production-based ranks. You have to feel for the, the two cars that I, I wouldn't say should have won the race because they broke the rules, but we're still trying to digest exactly how this all happened. Um, IMSA obviously adjusted the drive time from an hour, minimum hour 30 to a minimum of hour 17, but with so many cars not adhering to this, it does raise some questions. Um, you know, I, It's still a little too early to, to give judgment on this, and I, I rather refrain from that right now and, and, and see where it all develops in the next day or two. Yeah, it was interesting. You you talked about the fuel at the end. Although it was good for the 23, the 27 harder racing Aston Martin was running on fumes and they all but coasted across the line. Uh, that was the entry of Roman DeAngelis, Ian James, and Maxime Martin. Uh, and, and that was really interesting. And you also talked about, you know, when were we going to see a GTD car beat the pro car in class? We almost saw it if everything had, had gone according to the first initial finishing order of how everybody crossed the line. The windward car almost did it until BMW Team RLL got them right at the end. Uh, we were kind of watching the timing sheets being like, you know, oh my gosh, is, is this going to be finally the race? Uh, and even though it didn't happen in, in the way we initially expected, still really interesting to see this new GTD format uh, and, and the regular GTD cars be able to mix it up with the GTD Pros. Yeah, I, I personally love this format just because you have a great underdog story with this. And the heart of racing car was stacked with a good lineup in GTD, obviously, with Ian James um, probably being the weakest link. But he's a, a great driver. He says he's past his prime. He says he's in his, quote, twilight of his, of his career. But he is still a very quick peddler. Um, he, he obviously teamed with Roman DeAngelis and uh, Maxime Martin for the GTD victory. And um, I, I think it was an incredible to see how it all unfolded at, at the end of the race. Again, we're still waiting for provisional and then official results. I think the official results usually come later in the week. But um, yeah, it, it was really hard to follow. But um, I, I think we'll, we'll remember this race for quite a long time. We'll just run you through the finishing order briefly. In DPI, the top step of the podium, as we mentioned, was the number 10 Wade Taylor Racing Acura of Ricky Taylor and Philippe Albuquerque. Coming home second, the 60 Meyershank Racing Acura of Tom Blomquist and Oliver Jarvis. And the number one Chip Ganassi Racing Cadillac of Sebastian Bourdais and Ranger Van de Zanda came home on the third step of the podium. In LMP2, it was the number 52 PR1 Matheson Motorsports that crossed the line first of Scott Huffaker, Ben Keating, and Mikkel Jensen that crossed the line first. In LMP3, it was the number 74 Riley Motorsports car Felipe Fraga, Kai Van Berlo, and Gar Robinson who crossed the line first. In GTD, we mentioned the number 27 Hard 
of racing, Aston Martin, Roman DeAngelis, Ian James, and Maxime Martin, who crossed the line ahead of their fellow number 23, Heart of Racing, Aston Martin of Ross Gunn and Alex Riberis. It was busy out there with all of these classes, and we certainly saw that pay dividends in the number of yellows and stoppages that we saw, uh, but it certainly was an exciting one, really from start to finish. I would say so. There was a stretch, I think, for like a two-hour period of, of no cautions, and that was actually quite entertaining just to sort of see how the race was starting to play out. That all got neutralized with the, with the red flag, unfortunately. But at the same time, I think we saw some really good racing on track. I, I think the battle between Albuquerque and, and Blomquist was quite epic, and um, that's the kind of stuff that we, we come to a racetrack to see. Alongside the Salem Six Hours of the Glen, we saw many of the IMSA support series, one of which was the Michelin Pilot Challenge, where Robert Wickens is once again a race winner. An amazing drive along with teammate Wilkins in the Hyundai. Uh, A lot of Hyundai entries, but Wickens and Wilkins coming out on top. So congratulations, Robert Wickens, back in victory lane. Really just one of the great feel-good stories of the weekend. Absolutely. You know, he got a podium in his TCR race debut at Daytona and then had some challenging couple races, um, qualified third over the weekend here and, um, con- you know, got into the lead during his stint. And it was really cool to see him lead the TCR class and then hand it over to Mark Wilkins and who, who brought it over to victory lane, held off to Alfa Romeo for the win. And it was uh, definitely one of the, the feel good stories of the weekend for sure. And stay tuned to sportscar365.com because we'll have more on the story coming up in the coming week. Let's move into the news of the week, and we'll lead off uh, with talking about one of the teams that was competing, Windward. They had a steer-by-wire car that actually competed in DTM that they tried to get homologated for this race at Watkins Glen. They've been trying to compete with it this season, but it was disallowed. They weren't allowed to use it. Uh, It was on display in the paddock, but they were a little bit disappointed that they didn't get to debut this technology. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because the car initially showed up on the entry list just with Alec Udell as as the driver, no other drivers listed, and it just sort of disappeared, and it wasn't on the entry list um, when the official entry list came out on Thursday. And so we did some digging and and found out that um, about this whole program that was basically proposed to run this coming weekend. Um, it's a it's the space drive um, steer by wire system by Schaeffler Paravan. Um, it's well known to European listeners, I'm sure, um, as we've seen multiple cars run in Europe, including in DTM Nurburgring 24. Um, it's a technology basically that allows. Um, uh, electronically steered uh, uh, steering wheel uh, and controls instead of a mechanical component. And it actually doesn't produce any advantage as far as I know. I'm not super well-versed in it, but I did speak to somebody who was, Alec Udell, who actually works for the company now, who's a representative um, and and has done uh, quite a bit of testing with the car. They did a two-day test at Sebring with him, Maxi Buch, who drove the car in DTM last year, and um, Lorenzo Ferrari, who was was supposed to be the lineup for this coming weekend. Unfortunately, um, they did not get the full approval from the GTD paddock. Um, It's understood at least two manufacturers vetoed it um, that didn't allow running it they got approval from IMSA but ultimately 
Um, some of the GTD manufacturers that were not represented on the grid in DTM, we believe, that ultimately were a little cautious about the car. What's more is that they actually proposed running it unclassified, so it wouldn't have even affected the results in GTD, but we still had some manufacturers that were on the fence with this. So really unfortunate situation. The car did run some demonstration laps following uh, Saturday's Michelin Pilot Challenge race. Um, Alec told me that they're hoping to maybe get out on track for a, a race in, in IMSA later this year, but it's all going to depend on if the car will be approved to, to do it. But um, personally, I'm, I'm a fan of new technology. I'm a fan of innovation in the sport. And it's a real shame to, to see this sort of happen because sports car racing is always about innovation. And, and now we're getting things disallowed to race, even if they don't have a, any kind of form of, of technical advantage. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting in speaking to Alec this weekend, you and I were down in the paddock talking to him, and he said, you know, if anything, there's there's a one millisecond delay that actually changes your, your steering inputs. You have to kind of anticipate where the car is going to slide, how it's going to react under you, and kind of drive by the seat of your pants. So, uh, really, if you wanted to get super technical with it, there's a one millisecond disadvantage to the steering system. Um, but, you know, it, it, it would have been really neat to see this technology on the grid in an IMSA race. I hope we do get to see it in the future and, and many more new technologies like it. But at the very least, it's a neat piece of innovation that was shown showcased in the paddock just kind of showing what's possible we know that this technology is already being used uh, for mobility purposes as you said so there's a lot of neat things there uh, as well let's move into talking about some porsche news and there's quite a bit of it the porsche lmdh car's name and livery and lineup was revealed it'll be dubbed the 963 it was uh, donned with a classic red and white livery the lineup as well kevin estro michael christensen andre lauderer lawrence vantor matt campbell and matthew jaminet will join the previously announced felipe nazar and dane cameron i think no major surprises on the driver lineup but oh boy does the car look pretty um i i it's stunning livery um you know when it was in the camouflage all these months you never really got to see the total design and that was sort of done on purpose obviously but um looking at the new race livery for porsche penske motorsport that'll be used in both the wec and imsa next year and the name too with with such a, a throwback to the the 962 days for instance you know this is going to be the 963 it, it's really great for, for porsche to really embrace this lmdh program and, and really um take it on with with such precision and performance as, as we've seen in testing so far so it's really exciting to see the driver lineups announced like i said no major surprises i think we're expecting probably two more drivers to be announced um in the lineup in the coming weeks one of them we believe is already contracted to another manufacturer that's why he wasn't able to be, an, be announced um, in this batch of of lineups but um, certainly really interesting stuff from porsche and, well, if you want one, get in line. First of all, they're going to be expensive. $2.9 million, we understand, is going to be the cost in, in U.S. dollars. Uh, but JDC Miller Motorsport and Joda have kind of already beat you to the punch if you're in line to try to buy one of these bad boys. Uh, JDC Miller Motorsport was confirmed as the first LMDH customer, although their delivery for Daytona may not actually be on time. Yeah, and speaking with JDC Miller um, team co-owner John Church and Volker Holtzmeyer from Porsche Motorsport North America, the president and CEO, um, they indicated that they're not going to give out the customer cars until the car is basically ready. And they were short of saying that it's not going to be at Daytona, but 
Um, Volker basically said uh, Daytona debut for the customers, at least, um, not the factory cars. The factory cars are pretty much, they're going to do everything they can to be on the grid at Daytona, like every other LMDH manufacturer. But he said the customer cars, including the JDC car, would be in question. Um, he said that it, it could possibly be Sebring or it could possibly be a, a race later um, because they want to make sure the car is right. They want to make sure they have all the parts. They don't want to compromise on anything. So that's a definite interesting development because I know our Dan Lloyd spoke to Thomas Laudenbach from the head of Porsche Motorsport um, globally a few months ago, and he sort of indicated that the customers will probably debut at Daytona alongside the factory program. Um, this has sort of been a change in recent weeks, and we have to believe it's probably supply chain related. Um, everybody's facing issues around the world, and there's no no nothing to be pointed to in particular. It's just the way the world is 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 right now with that. So um, we'll have to wait and see exactly where this goes. We know there's going to be a second U.S. customer. Um, it, we believe is actually a European-based team that's going to join JDC in the customer lineup in IMSA. And um, like you said, Jonathan, we have Joda that confirmed their WEC program with a very interesting program um, backed by um, car rental company Hertz. Um, at least one car in, in the WEC, um, drivers to be de determined, just like the JDC entry. But um, great to see that basically the first two customers for the 963 confirmed over the weekend. And John, we have a Hertz rental car this weekend. Does that mean we, we get our name on the side as, as sponsors? I, I don't think it works quite like that, unfortunately, but um, still good to see Hertz. And, and they have a link with Porsche in the past um, through North, North American racing. So uh, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's great to see a, a, a sponsor like that step up to a, a program that's, that takes a, quite a bit of investment to, to, to do this. So um, exciting times for the world of sports car racing. And while we're on the topic of big purchases, Till Bechtelsheimer has purchased Lola Cars. And John, you got to catch up with him. Yeah, this was another interesting development that sort of came to light over the course of the weekend. It was confirmed on Friday that Till is now the owner of Lola Carr's intellectual property brand, as well as the Technical Center in Huntington in England. And um, this is a really cool story because basically the the company went into receivership um, in 2012, I believe. Multimatic bought a lot of the physical assets of of the of the program. But um, a lot of the history and, and, and parts and other some parts and other things were still in the Martin Bahrain family, even though Martin um, unfortunately passed away a, a few years ago. And they put it up for sale in January of 21, and um, Till was keeping an eye on it and, and decided to basically make the purchase. And he said it came through earlier this year, I think in January, and they've been sort of, sort of slowly building things up in the last couple months before announcing everything. And um, interestingly enough, Till said that they're looking to uh, uh, revive the company and, and bring Lola back into motorsport in the near future. Um, he said uh, endurance racing is obviously close to his heart. He's a co-driver with Gradient Racing in the in the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship in the, in the Endurance Cup rounds. He was just competing this past weekend at Watkins Glen, and um, he, he said that he would love to see the Lola nameplate back at Loma in the future. So stay tuned. We still have to figure out exactly how this will all happen. Um, you know, in the world of homologation and everything, it, it might make things a little more difficult, um, given that a lot of the, the way sports car racing is going is, is more towards um, 
full OEMs, you know, that you see on the road, but you never know. And I, I think this is a, 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 Till's a great guy to sort of take over the heritage and, and the responsibility of such a, a renowned motorsport brand. Well, there's plenty of news to keep track of, and there's plenty more as well. And you can keep track of all of it yourself by heading to sportscar365.com. Let's move into answering some listener questions. Old Trombone asked the first pair of questions in our previous episode. First, he asks, what do you think about dropping GT3 in the Nürburgring 24 and changing the classes to GT4 TC and standard road cars along with invites of BRZ86 Miata single make series uh, and their eccentric classics and everything must run on publicly available tires. My first thought is, my goodness, the blowouts uh, to put all that load uh, from a race car uh, on, onto a, a road tire uh, may not be the most sustainable. It's an interesting idea. I'm not quite sure if it's feasible, although it would be interesting to see maybe an 8.6 cup car or an MX-5 cup car kind of drive alongside GT4 cars, maybe on, on race tires at the Nürburgring 24. That might be something that, that's a little more feasible. I think the GT4 thing is more feasible. Obviously, we see some GT4 cars in the Nürburgring 24 right now. Um, sure, there's an arms race in GT3. There's open tire formula, which is actually really the only series in sports car racing that still has that outside of uh, Super GT. So it, it would be cool to, to see maybe some changes, but I, I think for now, GT3 is in a good place at the Nürburgring 24. Um, you mentioned standard road cars. I, I just don't think from a safety perspective that would be possible. We do obviously see standard road cars lap on the Nordschleife during session days, you know, during the week or whatever. But to put it in a 24-hour race environment, um, I, I would be a little hesitant to do that. But um, certainly a, a great idea, and thanks for the, the question. The second question, somewhat in the same vein, he says, I would prefer to watch Prototype Challenge with GT4 instead of GT4 with TC. I'm not a TC fan. Are there many TC fans or am I not alone in this vast universe? Yeah, you raise a good point. Um, you look at the TCR classes around the world and they're usually standalone races. So theoretically, IMSA could, you know, again, I don't think this is going to happen, but IMSA could run... TCR is a standalone sprint series, and then you would put LMP3 and GT4 together. However, I, I think that there was some consideration of bringing LMP3 inside Michelin Pilot Challenge a few years ago, but there was pushback from the GT4 manufacturers because they wanted to be the top class and, and have the spotlight on them. And that's why we see the combination of GS, GT4, and TCR in Pilot Challenge today. And I don't think we're going to see any kind of format change to that um, series moving into next year. I think it's more of a case of trying to figure out what to do with prototype challenge because it's gone gone a little stale in the last couple of years. We'll see what happens. We'll, we'll get an announcement at the State of the Sport address in August at Road America, and um, it'll be interesting to see what happens moving into 2023 and beyond. Our next question comes from He Who Knows, who also asks in a previous episode, with Porsche putting so much investment into hypercars, both factory and customers, is there any concern that their GT customers might be negatively affected? And this is interesting because while we know that the LMH and LMDH cars are meant to cut costs, they have already proven to be massively expensive. We know that the new Porsche LMDH is going to cost just shy of $3 million. Yeah, really good question here. Um, there actually has been some concern from some Porsche customer teams that we've spoken to, um, Porsche GT customer teams, let's be clear, about where the next crop of GT drivers will come from. Porsche obviously has a lot of drivers affiliated or directly 
associated with them via junior drivers or factory drivers or young professionals. But um, we're going to see the likes of Matthew Jaminet, Matt Campbell um, graduate to, to the Penske Porsche Motorsport program full-time. Obviously, um, Kevin, Kevin Estra, Michael Christensen, those two as well, um, Lawrence Vanthor. Those guys are probably all not going to be driving GT cars, at least not on a full-time basis. You may be seeing them at the Nürburgring 24 in a one-off or Spa 24 perhaps. But um, in terms of full-season programs in IMSA and ELMS and, and WEC, um, other GT3 championships around the world, I think Porsche is going to have to lean on some of their younger talent or more uh, currently inexperienced talent to sort of step up. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lack of it, but it's going to take some uh, uh, getting used to, and, and it'll be interesting to see if Porsche ends up replacing or, or maybe adds more factory drivers to their roster just because of the number of factory drivers needed for this LMDH program. We had a question on Twitter as well from OGF1, who says, CTMP will be my first ever IMSA race. Wondering if there is fan access to the pits or any driver signature sessions. Thanks, boys. Big fan of the show. Good news for you. There is an autograph session and an open grid fan walk. The autograph session will be Sunday from 11.15 to 11.45 a.m. local time in the IMSA paddock. You can walk around, explore, take photos, maybe even catch a driver or two. Uh, There is also an open grid and fan walk where you can do the same thing on pit lane and actually get to see how the team operates, all the equipment behind the scenes. That will be Sunday from 1.45 p.m. to 2.45 p.m. all before the race. Uh, These are both really good opportunities to go and meet the drivers, get a couple signatures, get some good photos, uh, and and really just kind of see how an IMSA team operates over the course of a weekend. Yeah, unlike some other series, IMSA has an open paddock, so you're welcome in the whole weekend, and I think that's what sort of sets it apart. Um, I'd say IMSA, IndyCar, um, other sports car races, racing in, in the U.S. It, it sets it apart for some, some, something like NASCAR or Formula One, and really the fan access is unparalleled and, and really what makes these kind of weekends. So it's great to be going back to Canada this coming weekend. It's been a really long time coming, and uh, can't wait to see all the fans out there. Thank you, everybody, who wrote in a question. We, we always get a kick out of answering these. If you would like your question answered right here on the show in an upcoming episode, you can post it in the comment section of this episode, or you can take to Twitter and post it using the hashtag AskDoubleStint. We'll put our heads together and do our best to answer your question on the show. Next week, we've got a really interesting question to answer. Uh, it's from Ricky Zagata, and he asks, when barriers are damaged at a racetrack, who is responsible? This is a great one, uh, and we can't wait to answer it for you next week. Let's give you a quick preview of what's coming up in the world of sports car racing. IMSA will have another round at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. It's a fast and flowing, more high-speed track. Uh, we know that the 01 Cadillac guys have already said they're they're already concerned about the Acura space. We know how quick the Acuras are on road courses. This could be another interesting one, John. Yeah, let's see if there'll be any BOP changes before before the, the race weekend. I think IMSA's open to adjusting again, um, especially maybe after what we saw this past weekend. Again, just an observation on my part. I have no inside info, but um, certainly it's going to be an interesting one. There should be up to 26 cars taking part. Um, the entry list showed 27, but we know at least one at the time of recording won't be there. Um, there might be others that don't show up. We saw a really bad accident for the AWA Duquesne um, of Lars Kern in the Salem six hours. It looked like that car was totaled. Not sure if they have a spare car on, t- on site. 
um, or at their shop in Canada. Also, the Carbon with Paragon Racing Lamborghini looked pretty wrecked as well. So um, stay tuned to Sports Car 365 for the latest on entries. Um, we should get some more clarity in the coming days on that. But um, like I said earlier, it's, it's going to be great to go back to Canada. And I, I think um, even though the grid may not be as high as what we're used to, I, I think it's going to produce a great show um, for sure. We'll also see another DTM weekend at the Norris Ring, as well as GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS. That's it for us this week on the show. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you're tuning in from. If you have the time, we'd greatly appreciate a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps out the show. For John DeGeese, I'm Jonathan Grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you right back here again next week for another edition of Double Stint.